Welcome to the 38th podcast in our series on the first half of American history. Welcome back. In the 37th podcast, we looked at the impact of how agriculture was changing in terms of its application within the United States as our boundaries were expanding and our population was skyrocketing. We took a quick glance at how life was in the original area of the 13 colonies, the East, in other words. We looked at the Northwest and the impact of John Deere and his steel tip plow invented in 1837, the impact of the rising railroad. We looked at the Southwest and the impact of what became known as the cotton gin. We took another quick glance and dove a little bit deeper than we had before into the life and plight of Native Americans within an expanding United States of America. We looked specifically at, of course, that Treaty of Fort Laramie of 1868. And then finally, we took just a very initial introduction to our still relatively new neighbors to the South, that being the country of Mexico. So in this 38th podcast, we're going to look at how one of our first interactions with the Mexican government will be sadly nothing other than war. If you remember then, on that 30, at the end of the 37th podcast, that when Mexico was deemed independent and formed its first government, that from the outset, right from the beginning, they encouraged American settlement and American investment in the region and in their territories and even in their government. The Mexican government also banned slavery and enforced a basic tax system. You might say, well, wait a minute. Why don't I remember reading about that in grammar school, social studies, or high school American, or even world history classes? Because again, a majority of the published histories are going to be coming out of the United States. The victors write the history more often than not. How Literally, how often have, has anybody ever read an account, a historical account of an event that happened or the life of an individual, and then took time to actually go and find somebody that disagreed with that assessment. Oftentimes, it's just a matter that we don't have the know-how. Sometimes we don't have the time itself. So there's nothing wrong, for example, with reading a complimentary book on John Adams. But what about individuals that didn't like our second president of the United States? What did they have to say about him? The American Revolution. That's it. It's the American Revolution. What else could it be known as? Well, how about to the British, the rebellion of the North American colonies, as they called it, you see. As a historian, I feel as though it is largely my responsibility that every time I read something that's in the plus about an event or a person, it's my responsibility to go see what a potential negative interpretation of that might be and vice versa. So therefore, I took, again, as a, as a reminder here of looking at, despite what we might not have known about a, Mexico's relationship stance and their view of America was one of nothing but friendship and economic cooperation. Therefore, in this podcast, there, <clears throat> from here on out, let's look then about how things deteriorated with our new neighbor to the south. And that would become formulated in the American domestic as well as the foreign policy of the President of the United States 
James Knox Polk, elected in 1844, inaugurated on March 4, 1845, where Polk from the beginning stipulated, made it an absolute mandate that he will be a one-term president. So he is not going to, for political points, do anything that might put him in a positive standing for possible re-election in 1848. Just the opposite. It's not that he wanted to do anything negative, but he wasn't worried about the way this something potentially negative could be held over his head four years later as he attempts to run for a second term. He's not going to. So his the way he saw it was with his election that he was going to be about territorial expansion. And that's what he campaigned on. Therefore, that's what he felt his mandate was. The first goal was to incorporate all territories leading out to the California Territory. The problem, needless to say, is that the Northern Territories of Mexico were standing right in his way. To generate popularity for his mandate, he passed what became known as a political slogan known as Manifest Destiny, where the translation was, quote, the U.S. should span sea to sea, end quote. And of course, the way words were added to make that a popular jingle for President Polk was that the United States should be able to span from sea to shining sea and the melodies that would go along with that. So <clears throat> that's what we know of as Polk's mandate, put into one title, Manifest Destiny. But let's unpack that. Let's go a little bit deeper than, again, a grammar school, social studies, or American history class might do in your typical high school or even basic college-level course. Let's unpack what he meant by Manifest Destiny. First and foremost is he felt that U.S. citizens were the natural inheritors of all profitable land. If land had the potential to generate income for an individual and then through taxes for the government, then doggone it, Polk was going to do what he could to see to it that he had that land flying an American flag on it. That led to his second part of his slogan, that it was, therefore, a natural right for U.S. citizens to be free and to be able to head west, should that be the prerogative. Finally, that the policy would help to alleviate population problems, congestion problems, and pollution issues along the East Coast, again, of the former 13 colonies that have now been populated for so long that land was a lot more expensive as it was prior, and there were issues with pollution. So wouldn't it help everybody within the confines of the United States if we could give ourselves more stretching room, more elbow room? And that was why Polk wanted to head west. Even if it didn't take gener if it took generations to get out there, at least there would be the breathing room that Polk thought was the natural inheritors of that territory being the United States. The average textbook, again, will go for maybe a brief explanation of manifest destiny 
right into the Mexican-American War. And while, again, I'm trying to give you both sides, both the good and the bad interpretations or perspective of President Polk and his policies, please note there's more to it here. It doesn't, Polk doesn't go right from Manifest Destiny, throws that from his desk to all the newspaper headlines, and then orders the American army to go attack Mexico. If you only read the actual uh, <clears throat> chapter or title to if the, of these individual parts of a chapter, it can make it look like that's really what happened. Manifest Destiny, boom, he gets elected on that, starts a war. The exact opposite ultimately happened. President Polk, realizing that Mexico may not be open or agreeable to hand over a massive amount of territory free and clear, and he did not expect that. But he also knew that a war could ensue. So Polk more or less scratched his head, took a look at the world map, and then a map of North, Central, and South America, and rightfully assessed that the outside of the United States, the other superpower, if you want to call it that, the other stronger power on the continents besides the United States was none other than Great Britain. So Polk immediately worked to improve relations with Great Britain, making sure that she was an ally, if for no other reason, so she wouldn't jump to Mexico's defense should a war break out. So for that reason, with Great Britain, from Polk's perspective, roughly on his, roughly on his side, Polk then sent over 3,000 United States soldiers to the Southwest under the leadership of Zachary Taylor. You might say, well, okay, Chris, though, yeah, he improves relations with Great Britain and then goes to war. So those old history books are right. Manifest Destiny, boom, goes to war. Nope, hear me out on this. Taylor's orders are not to embark on hostilities, not at all. Taylor is going down there with an offer. Taylor has been authorized by President Polk to offer $30 million to purchase the California and New Mexico territories from the Mexican government down to roughly the natural border of the Rio Grande River. That's what Polk's intention was by sending Taylor. Okay, then why the negative stripe against Polk and Taylor at this point? Because of that other minor number that you may have not heard or glossed over, the 3,000 U.S. troops. What I'm trying to say, listeners, is that if Polk truly was just planning on nothing more than a diplomatic mission, why wouldn't he send the American minister to Mexico? In this case, Nicholas Triss, why wouldn't he send him down there? Why not only send the head of the military branch, but also one with 3,000 soldiers in tow? And I'm not here to give you the exact reason for that. It's only conjecture as to what Polk was thinking. Was he literally trying to resemble or personify America's national seal with the gold, with the American eagle? Think about that. The American eagle 
our national seal. You can see it on our currency. Think about America's national seal for a moment. The head of that eagle, as well as its body, is always in the same position. And in the talons of America's national bird, the American eagle, in both of its talons are two different objects. No, don't cheat. Don't look. Don't go Googling this on me. Think about it for a moment. What is America's national bird holding in its talons on our national seal? One set of talons is, if you want to pause it here, go ahead. For those still continuing to listen or welcome back if you did pause. In the one set of talons, it's holding an olive branch. But what's in the other set of talons? None other than arrows. 13 arrows for the 13 original colonies. Arrows, though, nonetheless. In the 1700s and early 1800s, the arrow is still a formidable weapon of war. Think about that, the symbolism. Think about the intentions behind that symbol. And most importantly, look at the direction that the eagle's head is always facing. It's always facing its talons, the claws that are holding the olive branch. In other words, America, in creating our national seal, is trying to communicate to the rest of the world that America looks towards peace. However, if you choose to take advantage of that, if you choose to take our goodwill and use that against us, don't forget what's in our other set of claws of the exact same bird. You got it, weapons of war. If we were to modernize the American symbol today, that American eagle would be holding 13 ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, in other words, 13 nuclear bombs. I think the world kind of gets the point, even with the antiquated or outdated idea of a weapon of war, that being the arrow. So is this what Polk was trying to do? Hey, Mexico, just like our national seal exemplifies, I'm looking towards peace. I'm sending down a $30 million offer to purchase territory from you. That's all I'm looking to do. I'm looking towards peace. Should you turn down that offer, should you say no to that offer, just like the 13 arrows and the other set of talons of America's seal, so also is that offer coming from the hands of an American general. Is that what Polk meant? To date, we don't have an exact record as to what Polk's real intentions were by that mixed signal of a peace offering of $30 million, but also in that same set of hands, a series of weapons ready to go to war. So how did Mexico respond to this offer? Simply put, they declined it. They wanted that territory as they had acquired from Spain, rightfully so, and they wanted to keep it. That was the response that Polk received back from General Zachary Taylor. Now what? Here's where, once again, the historical record gets a little sketchy. But we do know and can base the response of Polk not based necessarily on what he might have written back to Taylor, but through the actions that General Zachary Taylor took. 
he began to move his soldiers closer and closer to the Mexican-American border, while President Polk went on a recruiting mission for more soldiers to send down to assist General Taylor. And he began to take pot shots at the Mexican army that also rightfully so was moving its soldiers to its own borders on the southern side. Finally, after a series of pot shots that the American army was taken against the Mexican army, on May 13, 1846, witnesses saw the Mexican soldiers briefly cross the Mexican-American border. Stop right there. To those witnesses that recount what happened, what clearly could it, those actions be spun through Americans to have the world believe that Mexico just did what to the United States? Go ahead, be cynical. You got it, invaded. On May 13th, because of the actions of, Amer of Mexican soldiers being witnessed to crossing of the American border with guns in hand and firing, America was being invaded. Therefore, we have to respond. No surprise, therefore, that an act the declaration of war was sent by Polk to the United States Congress, who vehemently agreed that we were being invaded and therefore had the right to defend ourselves. Now the American recruitment of soldiers skyrocketed. By September 1847, the American flag was flying from every flagpole in Mexico City. We not only had the Mexican Northern Territories of California, Arizona, and New Mexico well under our belt, we had progressed so far south that Mexico City was now flying the American flag. Clearly, Polk did not want to continue that far south, but the point was made and the Mexicans had learned their lesson, so Polk had rightfully assumed. Therefore, the war was resolved literally less than a half, just under a half a year later, by the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo on February 22nd, 1848. Mexico, therefore, would surrender that same territory that Polk once offered to buy them for $30 million. That territory was now flying the American flag permanently. Mind you, those modern-day states of California, Arizona, New Mexico, and the Texas Territory was 40% of Mexico's entire country had just been clipped off from them. Remember again, Polk offered to purchase that land in the first place, but hey, you invaded us, Mexico. We made an offer and we were looking to pack our bags and come home, but you crossed our border and started firing at us. Now you see, that might have been the interpretation and left it at that interpretation by the global community. However, there was one other small detail to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that also made a lot, caused a lot of negative suspicion 
of Polk and his administration. And that was that Polk authorized secretly to pay the Mexican government $15 million. They said, wait a minute. If we, the United States, was invaded by Mexico, why would we offer to pay them $15 million? Exactly. And that was the point, again, heard and interpreted not only throughout the United States, but worldwide. In fact, let's look into the minds of one of the diplomats that was sent down there to negotiate this treaty on behalf of the United States. The uh, smaller, short excerpt that I'm going to read is pulled from page 11 of James Bradley's book called Flyboys. Again, on page 11 of the edition that I'm reading, published in 2003, he starts at the very bottom of the page. On February 2nd, 1848, just as diplomats from the United States and Mexico were about to sign the treaty, one of the Mexicans turned to the American commissioner, Nicholas Trist, and remarked, quote, this must be a proud moment for you, no less proud for you than it is humiliating to us. To this, the commissioner simply and quickly replied, we are making peace. Let that be our only thought. However, later on, Commissioner Trist wrote a letter to his wife that would be discovered and become part of the American record. He wrote to his wife, quote, could those Mexicans have seen into my heart at that moment, they would have known that my feeling of shame as an American was far stronger than theirs could be as Mexicans. For though it would not have done for me to say there, to say so there, that was a thing for every right-minded Americans to be ashamed of. And I was ashamed of it most cordially and intensely ashamed of it, end quote. With these new lands, Bradley goes on to write on page 12, with these new lands on the West Coast and excellent new ports as well as bases, expansion has continued the tradition of gazing westward for opportunity, looking out to America's far west, the Pacific Ocean. To the Americans of the day, the significance of the Pacific meant first and foremost more natural resources. In this case, and most specifically, oil. Later on, gold and other products. But that's perhaps, again, is not an interpretation or a way that the Mexican-American War might have been covered in your, again, prior history classes. That said, please know that once again, the reason that an American history student wouldn't read it any other way is because chances are that history book was published out of a firm out of New York City, or at least somewhere in the northeastern part of the United States. Therefore, we call that conflict the Mexican-American War. Heck, we'd give Mexico a compliment and put their name first. But what about to Mexico? What do they call that conflict that erupted between 1846 and 1848. That's the war of American aggression, if you ask them, and that's what they title it, and rightly so. Quick 
Review of the numbers here. Total Americans killed were 13,283. Yes, because we fought an enemy, whether again we want to believe that we started that conflict or not, almost double is what Mexico lost, with 25,000 Mexican soldiers being killed, according to Mexican government records. What about how did that 3,000 soldier force led by Zachary Taylor ultimately prevail against that? because it wasn't just 3,000. When I said that President Polk went on and out of his way to start recruiting more and more soldiers to head down there, boy, did I mean it, and so did he. Not one of the most famous soldiers to not only get recruited, but go down there against his father's will was none other than the son of the Whig politician, the perhaps arguably one of the greatest speakers of the House of Representatives, that being Henry Clay who would lose his son down there under the leadership of General Zachary Taylor. By the time that conflict was wrapped up, American soldiers fighting in that conflict had swelled from 3,000 to 78,789. And by the way, did your history book ever tell you how many soldiers that Mexico was able to pull together? Well, it largely ranges a significant difference, but the range is anywhere from 18,000 forces that Mexico says is all it could conjure up, and the Americans put that number closer to 40,000. Regardless, those Mexican soldiers on their best day was fighting a two-to-one odd. On their worst day, they were outnumbered four-to-one. The cost of that conflict in 1848 dollars was $71 million. Adjusting that to $2017, that was a $2.6 billion conflict. $600 million more than the Manhattan Project would cost in World War II to devise the world's first atomic bombs. So that again, in this podcast, we looked at how our neighbor to the south formed its own government, made peaceful and economic overtures to the north, to their neighbor to the north, the United States, and how ultimately that offer would come back to bite them. We made, attempted to make that $30 million offer. They said no. We used our military as von Clausewitz would say, war is politics by other means. Not saying I agree with it, of course, but that's the way Polk interpreted and Zachary Taylor carried those orders out. No surprise either that his reward, Zachary Taylor's reward, for coming back with a victory, with three parts of a massive territory, 40% of land that once belonged to Mexico, the American people would reward Zachary Taylor by giving him the presidency right on the heels of an outgoing President James Knox Polk. So that wraps up the Mexican-American War. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions about this recording today, please contact me through my website, ceconsola.com. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review on the platform of which you're listening to it. When we return to our next podcast, we're going to be looking at now the very first descent of what will eventually be called an American Civil War. 
And that's what we'll start with in that next podcast. Have a great day. Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting.